In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Let's jump right into the text of Daniel, and here again, Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve puzzles were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So it was the evening of the 12th of October, 539 B.C., almost 2,500 years ago. After King Nebuchadnezzar, there was a series of kings who usurped the throne through murder and palace coups. In 556 BC, 17 years before Belshazzar's party, a palace coup had removed Labashi Marduk, grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and replaced him with a man named Nabonidus. Nabonidus was an outsider to the royal family. He was from the city of Haran, not Babylon. That's important because the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon was Marduk, but the chief god of Haran was Sin, the moon god. And Nabonidus upset the people of Babylon by downgrading Marduk 
in favor of his people's God, sin. Nabonidus left Babylon for most of the last ten years of his reign. That may have been why people were angry with him. You can imagine how angry people are when you change up their deities. We know that during his absence, he spent that time in Arabia. We don't know exactly why. The Persian Empire was quickly gobbling up Babylonian territory, and Nabonidus may have gone to Arabia to firm up his relationship with the people there, as that was part of his empire. It may have been some kind of madness. It's very possible that the account of Nebuchadnezzar's departure into the wilderness that we read about in chapter 4 last week might actually have happened to Nabonidus. But whatever the case, he was gone from the kingdom, and he left his son, Belshazzar, to rule the empire as a co-regent, a second in charge in his absence. And as chapter 5 opens, Nabonidus has only recently returned. He's taken command of the Babylonian army as they went to war with the Persians. And in fact, just days prior to Belshazzar's feast, Nabonidus had been defeated by the forces of Cyrus, the Persian emperor. Belshazzar, now on the 12th of October, 539 BC, stands alone in a besieged Babylon. So that's what lies behind this feast. It wasn't just any old feast. It wasn't just some drunken orgy. It was an important religious festival. The Babylonians called it Akitu. It was an annual festival associated with the new year. And if October seems a little late to be having a New Year's festival, this is because Nabonidus had declared Sin, the moon god, to be the chief deity of the people. And the Akitu that had been associated with Marduk took place at the spring equinox, which was when most of the peoples in that part of the world celebrated the new year. But in Haran, it was a little different. Their Akitu, their New Year's festival, was associated with Sin and took place at the time of the fall harvest moon beginning October 12th in 539 B.C. And the festival lasted for 11 days. This was the start of it. And the reason Belshazzar would bother with this, just as his empire was falling to the Persians, was because the Akitu festival, the New Year festival, was the annual re-enthronement of the king in the presence of his gods. These festivities would go on for 11 days, and at the end, he would take his throne to rule for another year. His priests would announce the will of the gods for the next years, which was undoubtedly favorable towards the king. And the empire and his people would have assurance that they had a stable ruler and that the gods were behind him. That's why this was important. The Persians were at the gates. Belshazzar may have believed his father was dead. He wasn't, but Belshazzar may not have known that. He needed the support of his people, but most of all, he needed the support of the gods. So there, with the harvest moon hanging in the sky, he began this ritual to assure his victory. 
I don't think he did this in desperation. Babylon was a strong city with good defenses. Belshazzar was ready for a siege, but this ceremony would guarantee that the gods were on his side. But in that ceremony, he goes a step too far. He calls for the temple vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had brought from Jerusalem. These were the vessels used to pour out libations or drink offerings. You read about drink offerings in the Torah. These were the vessels used to pour them out to the Lord. The Babylonians had similar sorts of vessels, and they would use them for libation offerings to their gods. After the drink offerings were poured out to the gods, it was then customary for the Babylonian king to drink what was left in order to show his connection with the gods, sort of saying that he was their favorite. And if anybody needed the help of the gods right then, it was Belshazzar. But again, like I said, he takes it a step too far. He treats the vessels from the Lord's temple the same way he treats the vessels of his own gods. He treats the God of Israel the same way he treats his own gods. He's not intentionally profaning these sacred vessels by partying with them. I don't think that's the point. What he's doing is enlisting the help of the God of Israel. Because to his way of thinking, when his people conquered Judah, they didn't just conquer the people of Judah. They also conquered the God of Judah. So the God of Israel, so far as the Babylonians saw things, the God of Israel is now a vassal subject to their gods and to their king, And by drinking from these vessels, again, Belshazzar is enlisting the God of Israel to fight for him. Sound like a good idea? Probably not. The Lord, the Most High, the one true God, does not work that way. The Lord is not like the gods of the pagans. Immediately, the text says, a human hand appeared and it wrote on the plaster of the wall. Archaeologists have dug up this very throne room. You can go visit it today if you want. Its walls are indeed plastered, just like the story says. But these weren't, in Belshazzar's day, just plain white plaster walls. I'm not sure why the kids' story we read read that in. They're plaster, but they're not just plain white walls. This was the palace of the greatest king in the world. The walls were covered with frescoes, paintings, and we would expect there to be at least one fresco depicting the king standing before his gods. There's an interesting word in verse 5. The ESV writes that this hand appeared in front of the lampstand. But it's not the word for lampstand. We know that word. That word would be menorah. You all have heard that word. Menorah, lampstand. The problem is, the word's difficult. It's what's called a hapax legomenon. When when you get to heaven, there will be a test. You need to know that. Right, Matt? (laughs) That's a word that only appears once in the Bible. So we can't look at other places where it's used to help us figure out its meaning, but what we do know is this word that's translated here, lampstand, 
It, it comes from a root that means to shine or to luminesce. And what it's probably referring to is Belshazzar's deities, his gods, depicting, depicted in a fresco. The Babylonian gods, they represented the sun, the moon, the planets, the stars, the the luminaries in the night sky. So this is probably a painting on the wall of the king surrounded by his gods. So everything in this scene that's going on here is about the king having the support of his gods as the city is besieged by the Persians. You've got the Akitu, the New Year festival itself, the, the re-enthronement of the king. You've got the king drink, drinking from the temple vessels and enlisting his gods. And you've got this painting of the king surrounded by his gods. And then this human hand appears. Maybe it just appeared in the air. I was reading a, a recent article this week that argued that there was a hand that was part of the painting, maybe the king's hand, something like that, and it sort of came to life. Whatever the case, it's fear-inspiring. On one hand, maybe initially, Belshazzar's thinking, this is exactly what I wanted. Because everything he's doing is meant to show that he has the authority and the backing of the gods. If the festival continued, his priests would have issued declarations another 11, or 10 or 11 days later, his priests would have issued declarations of the gods' support for him. And now maybe at first this seems better than anything you could have hoped for. Here's a divine hand and it begins to write. But first, it defaces that sacred image of the king with his gods. And then over the top of it, the hand writes these mysterious words. And from the beginning, it's clear Belshazzar knew this was not good. It says he went pale. The Aramaic says literally that the cords of his loins went slack and his knees knocked. He wet his pants and he stood there quaking in his soggy boots. The hand disappeared, but the writing was still there. And it wasn't just something the king saw, everybody saw it. So he summons all the wise men, because of course, as we've figured out through Daniel, that's what happens when the king doesn't understand. He summons his wise men to find out what it meant. Why it was a mystery isn't exactly clear. Aramaic, like Hebrew, it's written without any vowels. It's just consonants. And so you can take the same consonants... And it might be a noun, depending on what vowels you speak with those consonants. But if you throw in different vowels, it might be a verb. So that might be one reason it was, it was confusing. The king first sure, wasn't sure how to read it. But second, even if he knew what the words were, well, I mean, what did they mean in this context? And the king's wise men, they've got no more idea than he did. That's kind of been the theme all the way through Daniel, hasn't it? I mean, the the, the wise men may be fine in their own pagan domain, but when the Lord acts, or when the Lord speaks, the pagans are always left confused. 
and all their learning and wisdom is exposed as useless. It's kind of worth noting. Think about back to the beginning of Genesis, the original Babylon. How did it fall? They built a tower to heaven, and the Lord confused their languages so they couldn't understand each other. And now the fall of the last Babylonian empire is announced in a language that even the wise men can't understand. Not everybody in Babylon is a fool. Apparently, hearing all the hubbub, it says the queen makes her appearance at the banquet. This is probably the queen mother, probably the widow of Nebuchadnezzar. Her name was Nitocris. By all accounts, she was a force to be reckoned with. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us that she was full of great and profound wisdom. And the storyteller here gives us a sense of that. In the middle of this storm of knocking knees and wetting pants, the queen mother arrives, and she tells everybody to shut up and calm down. Maybe she knew that defeat was inevitable, but she arrives and she says, there is a man full of wisdom who had solved riddles just like this back in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. His name is Daniel. Call for him and he will know what it all means. She probably also knew they weren't going to like what it meant, but she said, call for Daniel. Nitocris was old enough to remember that when the Most High God spoke to Babylonian kings, things did not go well for them. And so the king summons Daniel, who's probably now in his 80s. Look at verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I've heard, that, I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation... You shall be clothed with the purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. It seems like Belshazzar speaks kind of contemptuously of Daniel, but he still makes the same offer he made to the other wise men. Tell me what it means, and I will give you the robe of a king and make you the third ruler of the kingdom. Of course, Daniel knows better. He isn't interested in rewards. The God of Israel has spoken And Daniel, who serves this God, will tell the king what it means, but he's really interested in nothing more than that. He knows this is the end of Belshazzar's kingdom. What's the point in being its third highest ruler? So we'll pick up at verse 17, but notice how Daniel explains what's really important before he even gets to those words that are written on the wall. It says, Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. 
Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. But now, before he does that, he says, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, hint, hint, he was brought down from his throne, his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, And whose are all your ways, you have not honored. So Daniel reminds Belshazzar the things he should already have known. It is the Most High God who raises up kings and brings them down. The Most High had raised up Nebuchadnezzar. The Most High had even given Jerusalem and and the the vessels of his own temple into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And when the king became proud, when he claimed the credit for himself, when we saw in the last chapter that he ruled without justice and mercy, the Lord took him down. The man who thought he was the great and mighty Gilgamesh of his age was humbled by the Lord and made like Enkidu, the beast man running wild in the wilderness. But the Lord had spared his kingdom and restored the king so that he could acknowledge the Most High as the true king of kings. Remember, the nations will glorify the Lord. Belshazzar knew all this. There is no way he didn't know all of this. But there is no such humility in his heart. And the Lord knows the hearts of men, People ask, why was the Lord merciful? Why did he give a a second, a third chance to Nebuchadnezzar and not to Belshazzar? The Lord knows the hearts of men. The fact that Belshazzar brought brought in the Lord's sacred vessels in an attempt to enlist, to coerce the Lord or to force the Lord to fight for him highlights the hubris, the pride that Belshazzar had far beyond that of Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar thinks he can snap his fingers and that the God of Israel, the Most High, will come running to serve him. And so Daniel explains the words. He says, Then from his presence the hand was sent, 
And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many tekel parshim. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Many. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perish, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Daniel reads the words as three coins. Mina, mina, shekel, and a half. If Belshazzar were alive today, if this happened in the parliament or in the White House, the writing on the wall might say something like, a dollar, a dollar, a dime, and a nickel. Or a pound, a pound, a penny, and a haypenny. But remember that in the old days, coins were associated with weights. So Daniel looks to the the verbal roots relating to the weights behind these coins and uses that to explain the meaning. The king has been numbered. The king has been weighed. And now his kingdom is divided. Meaning that the king was appointed. He was given his throne by the Most High. He has been weighed by the Most High and found wanting. And now he is to be punished. He is to be brought down by the Most High. And Daniel sort of plays with that last word, perish, which sounds like Persia. And he does that to foretell the fall of the kingdom to the Persians. It may be that the Lord here is exposing the failures of that string of kings in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar the Great was the Mina, and Nabonidus the Shekel, worth only a sixtieth of a Mina, and wretched Belshazzar, for all his pride, is worth only half of that. But whatever the case, the point is these kings were only great because the Lord had made them so. And they only served because they served him and served his purposes, not he theirs. And now their entire empire is to be judged and handed over to another. I mean, at least at the end, Belshazzar was good to his word. Maybe he hoped it wasn't true. It says, Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. I, mean, I can just imagine Daniel standing there and <laughs> picking the stuff up and shaking his head. In the distance, you can hear the Persian army making its way through the palace hallways. I mean, maybe Belshazzar still thought his gods would bail him out, but Daniel knew it was hopeless. The Lord had spoken. And when the Lord speaks, he says what he means. And the storyteller drives this home in the last verses. He says, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. That very night. This character called Darius the Mede is something of a mystery. 
I'll save that for next week because this is long already. But here's what happened. The events of that night of October 12, 539 B.C. are well documented. The Euphrates River flowed through the middle of Babylon, and while the Babylonians were feasting and calling on their gods, the forces of Cyrus, the Persian emperor, diverted the river upstream. Babylon's great walls were so wide that you could turn around a chariot driven by four horses on the top of them. Surely no one could breach those walls. But it didn't matter when the Persian army simply marched under them through the dry riverbed. The army of Cyrus took the city without a fight. We don't know who killed Belshazzar. His death is only recorded here in Daniel. Cyrus was actually a gracious king and spared the life of Nabonidus, so it seems a little odd that he would have killed Belshazzar. Maybe Belshazzar was killed by his own people. Again, we just don't know. But that night, he died. His rule came to an end. Babylon was gone forever. The evening began with Belshazzar enlisting the God of Israel to fight for him. And in the end, he's exposed by the God of Israel as a fool. The God of Israel fights for no one. And in fact, we find that Cyrus fights for him. What does, that, what, what does that all mean for us? I mean, I think first that, that, that we once again have an exhortation to remain faithful in difficult times. Again, these stories about Daniel during the exile were collected to exhort the people of Judah to remain faithful as they lived through the terror of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign. And as they watched their fellow Jews take the easy way out and give in to paganism, I mean, maybe more than anything, the story of Belshazzar is a warning to kings and rulers to remember that the Most High is the real king and that they serve at his pleasure. But that truth should be an encouragement to us. Even when our earthly rules are full of pride, and they always seem to be, even when they fail to act justly, which is so often the case, brothers and sisters, we know that God is still sovereign, that he holds earthly rulers to account, and that no matter how bad things get, he never ceases to hold us in his hand. Especially in light of Jesus and his cross and in light of the gift of the Holy Spirit, We have experienced the dawning of God's new creation, and you and I know that new creation is precisely where the world is heading. It doesn't go in a straight line. (laughs) We know that so surely. But we know where where, where creation is heading. And the unjust and the prideful rulers of this world will not derail the train on its way there. It doesn't always look like that's where we're headed. We face opposition. We may face persecution. Sometimes Christians even face martyrdom. But we have hope because we know that the Lord will finish what he has begun. He has already done the hard and costly part 
the part where his own son died. But because of that, we can be sure that he will surely continue and finish with the easy part. But what keeps coming to mind as I wrestle with this chapter, I've been wrestling with it all week, actually a couple of weeks now, what comes to my mind is the question of how you and I relate to God. Rob brought my attention on Wednesday to a prosperity gospel preacher who was in town this week. And so I had to go on the internet and listen to what she was saying. Thanks, Rob. (laughs) And I listened to some of what this preacher was saying and, and, and thinking just how much this false prosperity gospel is an awful lot like Belshazzar using the holy vessels of the temple in an attempt to enlist God to his own cause and agenda. Because the prosperity folks enlist the Holy Gospel, they enlist the Holy Spirit for their cause. And you and I may not be so crass in pursuing or using the Gospel or thinking we can control the Spirit or control God to gain health and wealth and ecstatic experiences and all that. But we, too, are sometimes guilty of treating the Most High as if he exists to serve us. Nations do it, just as Belshazzar did, declaring that God is on our side. We do it in politics, claiming that we are in the right and that God is on our side. We even sometimes do it in the church. We devise our plans, and sometimes they're even good ones. And we often have plans to promote the gospel and to promote the kingdom, and and we just assume that our plan is God's plan. We do it personally. We're convinced sometimes that we know what is best, and we insist that God make that thing happen for us. I mean, we know that God wants what's best for us. But brothers and sisters, sometimes we twist that knowledge, that truth, into the belief that God wants for us what we think is best for us. And brothers and sisters, that's a dangerous place to be. I think I know what's best for me, but God knows better. And what God knows is best may not be the same, often is not the same, as what I think is the best for me. This was Adam and Eve's mistake. Because we are finite beings. God created us that way, with finite knowledge, finite understanding, finite wisdom. We can't see everything to evaluate it all. God created us with a limited ability to recognize truth and beauty and goodness. But he also created us ultimately to rely on him for that ultimate knowledge. Only he knows perfectly what is good. And he has shown us repeatedly that he is good and faithful so that we can trust him. He humbled himself 
to become incarnate, one of us, and to die for our sake so that we can know just how profoundly good and faithful he is. He gives us every reason to trust him. Sometimes he walks us through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes he leads us beside still waters and into green pastures. But either way, he is with us. And the path he takes us on is the very path we need to be on for the best. Think of Jesus praying in Gethsemane the night before he was handed over to suffering and death. He prayed to his father for strength. He prayed that if there was any other way, his father might take that cup from him. But in the end, he entrusted himself to the goodness and the wisdom of his father. Not my will, but thine. The prosperity hucksters will tell you if you pray that way, it's a sign of a lack of faith. And that's blasphemy. God's will is infinitely better than ours. And because Jesus prayed that prayer, new creation was born. Because Jesus prayed that prayer, we know the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus prayed that prayer, God's own spirit has been poured into us to give us a foretaste of that dawning new age. Because Jesus humbled himself and trusted in the goodness of his Father. And Jesus himself, notice he didn't spend his ministry scrambling for prosperity, dreaming up get-rich-quick schemes, setting up multi-level marketing scams to hook his disciples into his downline. Jesus was repeatedly presented with other seemingly good plans, with other avenues to the world's throne, with ways that did not involve his crucifixion. We read that in the gospel this morning. But Jesus knew the scriptures, and he knew that the real way to the throne, the only one that would bring salvation and renewal, was the path of humility and of suffering and of humiliation and even of death. From a human perspective, it did not look good. But it was good. It was the Father's plan. And because Jesus knew that, He followed. He followed in confident faith. So, brothers and sisters, as you and I keep our eyes on Jesus and his cross, may we too remember the unfailing goodness and faithfulness of our Father. May we too always walk humbly before him, trusting him, submitting to him in faith. It's an amazing thing to ponder. God does not exist to serve us. He created us to serve him. But still, when we rejected that vocation, even when we turned our backs on him, the God who created us to serve him, he gave his life to forgive and to restore us. He became a servant, giving his life so that we might be restored, so that we might understand the goodness of our own servant vocation. St. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 
a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We might also say, just as as validly, walk in humility as the Messiah humbled himself for us and gave himself up for us. This is what we were created to do. This is what we have been redeemed to do again. When we say, not my will, but thine, brothers and sisters, we become a fragrant offering to God, revealing the glory for which we were created as we humbly offer ourselves to glorify him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, for our sake you fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Give us grace so to discipline ourselves that our flesh, being subdued to your spirit, we may always obey your will in righteousness and true holiness to the honor and glory of your name. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.